talking about today. So you guys, on the back of your bulletins, if you don't have it memorized yet, it's back there. So you guys have a little bit of a guide to use um, in helping you to quote what we're going to do it. Uh, we'll give the reference and then the verses and then the reference again. Okay, you guys ready? You with me all? All right. Ephesians 5, 13 to 17. But all things become visible when they are exposed by the light, for everything that becomes visible is light. For this reason it says, Awake, sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. So then, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Ephesians 5, 13-17. Well, welcome. For those of you who are visiting and those who come every single week, our pastor, Pastor Paul Martin, is on a little bit, and I think Ron actually mentioned, is on a, a retreat um, of sorts. And we become the beneficiary of that as he goes away. Um, so be praying for him over this next couple of weeks. So there's uh, special services planned next week. Herb will be speaking, and then the week after that is our combined service. And uh, Pastor Hector will be bringing the message that week through a translator. So just heads up a little bit. And then what a great opportunity, too, for us to split because he just finished Romans chapter 11 last week. So he's jumping into Romans chapter 12. And that's a great opportunity in the book of Romans, actually, when you're um, expositionally preaching through a book like that, to actually take a breath. And so we get the benefit of him coming back and, and picking up again in Romans chapter 12. So my name is Carrie Olson. For those of you who don't know me, and uh, Reg, my wife and I, um, we're the youth directors here. And so welcome, one and all. Welcome to Father's Day, by the way. In fact, my, um, the message, I actually titled the message, A Biblical Snapshot of, the man, of a Man of God. And so uh, even before I even get started, I just want to give you guys a little heads up here that a lot of the things I'm going to be talking about specifically in reference to the man of God as we get forward, but it still applies and I'll talk to women, and I'll talk about that as, as we head in. So let's pray again, and then we'll get to work in the scriptures. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for um, that we can call you Father. And today is Father's Day. We celebrate that today across the nation. Thank you for the way that you've created families. Thank you for children that have come into the world. Each one of us um, was born into the world with parents. Uh, some of us are parents today and uh, continue to be. Some of us will be parents in the future. And so, Lord, we pray. We want to be uh, parents. We want to be uh, men and women of God that follow hard after you. And so, as we open up your word, Lord, I pray that you would open up our hearts. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see and, and a mind to comprehend the truth, Lord, and to be able to discern the difference between that truth and error. And then, Father, we would pray that you would give us the grace by your Spirit that was sent into the world through the request of your Son and into your church, grace us with your presence that we might live out the things that we learn today. And uh, we give you thanks for that. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we'll open up your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Just to give you guys a, a little bit of a heads up, um, Timothy was a young man. Paul the Apostle was going on evangelistic trips and on some of his trips, he actually came across Timothy, and he actually has two letters that he wrote specifically to Timothy, 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy that we, that we know of, that made it into the canon of Scripture. 
Both of them are incredibly encouraging. This is a very applicable, like, application-oriented message, um, as you're going to see. And I want to give just a little bit of a, a warning at the beginning, and that is, is that our hearts are desperately wicked. And so we have a tendency, actually, to, even when we're exposed to the truth, to begin um, to apply things in ways that God never meant it to apply. My warning here is that um, God has predestined us, it says in Romans chapter 8. Paul actually just uh, preached to this a while back. Predestined us to become conformed into what? Into the image of his son Christ, okay? So God has predestined us to become uh, conformed for believers to be fashioned, to be molded, to ultimately, when we're perfected, to look like Jesus. And so, um, in another passage, in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, it says that it is no longer Carrie who lives. It doesn't say Carrie in the Bible, but you get the idea. It is no longer Carrie who lives, but it is Christ who lives within me. And the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. And so, my, my little exhortation here at the beginning is that as we go through this message and it's very application-oriented, we have a tendency, myself included, to begin to think that this is a bunch of um, uh, like rules and regulations for us to follow, and they are commands that we should follow. The key, though, is that it's not a religious system that we force energy into. These aren't a whole a list of things that, like plates on a bench press that we need to get on and start benching, okay? These are all attributes of Christ of which that God is actually manifesting in and through our lives. So that being said, everything that we talk about, frame it in the framework of God's grace and in the person of Jesus Christ who actually has opened up the door for us to be like this, okay? So Paul actually writes these letters to Timothy and you remember um, this title this title, Man of God, actually occurs only twice in the New Testament. It only occurs twice in the New Testament. The, the first time that I'm going to reference, actually there's one in 1 Timothy and then one in 2 Timothy. This is where I'm going to start though. In 2 Timothy, he's writing to Timothy and he wants him to remember some things. And in 2 Timothy chapter 3, starting in verse 14, he says, I want you to continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed knowing from whom you have learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. I like that sacred writings stuff. It's kind of cool. It reminds me of some sort of like, I like the epic stories. I've said that before, but sacred writings. I mean, this is what children's ministry is all about. It's a, you know, like we're all about, we want to get young people, kids, young kids, teenagers, adults exposed to the truth of God's word and in this particular situation, Timothy had been exposed to the sacred writings from a time that he was a, a, from the time that he was a child. Maybe some of you who are uh, moms and dads, you have children that are like that. Maybe um, your children were exposed to the truth from a young age. Maybe maybe you got saved when you were older, and that wasn't the case. That's okay. It's never too late, and the truth comes in amazing ways. And in this case, Timothy was exposed when he was a child. And look at what it says. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, it says that these sacred writings are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. That's what the Bible is there for. They're actually to give us wisdom. God actually has, and we sang about this, He speaks about all of His power and all of His might and all of His glory and creation. Lately, we've been hearing a lot of thunder and rain going on around here. 
sometimes flooding even, but God speaks his glory through creation. He also speaks his glory through this word, and Timothy had been exposed to it, and the word is there, and creation is there, singing a song of praise, and as Christians, we join in, and they're all there orienting us to walk the path of wisdom, which is pointing at salvation through Christ by faith. That's what it's pointing at. Now, one of the times out of the two in the New Testament where the phrase, the man of God, actually occurs is in the next part of this verse, in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Now, some of you probably have this memorized. It says, For all Scripture is inspired by God, or is breathed out by God, and is profitable for four things. For teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And here's one of the phrases, that the man of God may be adequate and equipped for every good work. And so, the first thing I want to point out here is that for the title of man of God that God lays on people actually is directly correlated to the scriptures. Do you see that? That the man of God is tied, is inseparable to their connection with the word of God. All scripture is inspired. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction. And so that the man of God may be adequate, might be competent, equipped for every good work. Now the other place where the title, Man of God, actually occurs is in our passage, 1 Timothy chapter 6, and it's in verse 11. 1 Timothy 6, verse 11. And it says, But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith and take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. That is the only place. Now, here's what I'm getting at. If God wrote the Bible, and I think he picked specific words to write the Bible, even down, we believe, down to the very tense of the words. You know what I'm talking about? Jesus actually broke out on some Sadducees at one point when they came to him. Now, the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection, and so you remember like near the end of uh, his public ministry, they were always trying to trap the Lord in like these word games and stuff, and like he would be awesome at Jeopardy. You know what I'm talking about? No one could actually beat Jesus at Jeopardy. And they were trying to trap him in like these games, and so they didn't believe in the resurrection, and they came up to him and they said, hey, look at, there was a man and he was married and he had seven brothers. You remember the story I'm talking about? And they got married and they didn't have any children, and then he died, and uh, so then according to Mosaic law, she, she actually married the next brother, and uh, there were no children again, and so then he died, and thus that went on and on and on for all seven brothers. So in the resurrection, parentheses, which we don't believe in, which, you know, whose wife is she going to be? And Jesus actually, he, you know, he never answers the question straight up. It's hilarious when you read it. I love him. And he just tells him, he's like, you guys don't understand the scripture. That's what he told him. He's like, you guys don't understand the Bible that you're believing. So he goes right to the core of the issue. He knows you're t- you don't believe in the resurrection, but here's what I'm talking about. In the Old Testament, the part that you actually believe in, God said after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had all died and were buried in the earth, God said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Thus, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And you see, he was breaking them out. He's like, you, believe, you say you believe in the word, but you actually don't because the verb actually says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And if they were not totally alive, even though their bodies were in the ground, 
then God would have used a different tense, didn't he? He would have said, I was the God of Abraham, I was the God of Isaac, and I was the God of Jacob, and today I want to be your God, but it is I am. And so down to the very tense of the word. That's what we believe. That's actually, we believe in the verbal plenary inspiration of God's word, that every single word God chosen in the original text were chosen by God, the verses, the, the words, the tenses, down. That's why we actually, that's why Paul's always bringing up Greek stuff all the time and all that kind of stuff. And it's important for us to actually get some of that down, not that we need to all know Greek, but that we understand what we believe in so that our trust is in the word. So now what I'm getting at is the phrase man of God doesn't actually appear very much at all. It only appears twice in the New Testament. So what I'm putting forward is an idea that the phrase man of God, the title man of God, is special. It doesn't apply to everybody, okay? Even though you are a Christian, it might not necessarily apply to you. Now, in the Old Testament, it actually appears, the title actually appears 76 times, between 75 or 76 times in the Old Testament. It actually references only about 12 people. In those 76 references, only about 12 people God actually calls a man of God. Okay? So now, let me give you just as, as a way of, a, of an introduction to the Old Testament part, is here's some names of people that are actually called man of God. By the way, if you have a computer, you need to get Bible software, right? I mean, the only reason, I think, the primary reason why computers exist, believe it or not, for those of you who are young, is not for uh, dating websites or for uh, Facebook or MySpace or instant messaging or email, but it's for studying the Bible, all right? It's for studying the Bible. If you don't have Bible software on your computer, you're missing the whole point of why God allowed the binary chips to be created in the first place, all right? Because he wants us to actually get the word, and, and it's an amazing tool for studying scripture, all right? So go home if you, have, if you don't have the software, Come see me, I can recommend some. And um, just do a search on man of God and you can look up those 12 people. I don't have time to go into all of them. Some of those stories are awesome. Some of them are incredible. Some of them are a little bit sad. The first person that God actually calls a man of God in the Old Testament is Moses. Moses was referred to as a man of God. He also was called the friend of God. Remember that? Because it said that Moses would actually go into the tabernacle and he would speak to God like a, a man speaks to another man. And do you remember like when the Ten Commandments were given? You do realize when the Ten Commandments were given, um, God actually came down on the mountain and he spoke to the people. He actually, God actually spoke to Israel. And then they freaked out and they're like, Dude, we don't want to hear God anymore. Moses, you talk to God and then you tell us what he says. Now today, once the veil had been opened up, once the veil had been opened up, we actually now have an opportunity to commune with God again. Now, look at, I mean, God does, I don't have a mountain in my backyard. And, and if I did, if God came down with smoke and fire and was talking, I probably would be freaked out a little bit too. I might even call Paul. I'd be like, Pastor, you've got to get over here right now. There's something weird happening in my backyard. And I'm not going out there because God could kill me. And that's kind of how they thought. Remember what he said? He's like, if any of you touch the mountain, you will die. And so Moses, though, was called a man of God and he was a friend of God, even though he didn't get to enter into the promised land because of the thing with the staff, right? Isn't it cool, though, that God, when he paints the stories of these people, even though they received this label of man of God, they were not necessarily perfect, and grace is still at work in the life of Moses, even as it is today in, the, in our lives, okay? Another, another person who was called a man of God was Samuel. Samuel is actually considered to be the last judge. The book of Judges is a pretty interesting book. It's actually one of the saddest books, believe it or not, in the Bible, I think. But it's also got some pretty amazing stories in it. Um, if you like to read 
some interesting stories. There were women that were judges that like brought the smackdown on people. There were guys that were judges that brought the smackdown. Samuel was, a, was one of the judges. He was a prophet of God called the man of God. He also um, would like rule, you know, kind of like um, was the voice of God. God was the ruler, but he would bring truth to the people. And so sometimes prophets were referred to as a man of God, like Elisha or Elijah were referred to the man of God. One of, one of the coolest um, people that were referenced as a man of God in the Old Testament that I like which where I get my definition for what I said earlier, that Jesus is the man of God, actually comes out of um, Judges chapter 13, and it's the story of Samson and Samson's conception. Now, Samson is a whole study in and of himself. You know what I'm talking about? Can you imagine if young guys could have like supernatural strength and power just by growing their hair long? There would be no more crew cuts at all, man. Everyone would be like, Check it, I can actually pick up this SUV that no one can pay for the gas in it. That's okay, I'll, I'll just walk you. Well, I'll just push you along. You don't need to pay anything. Just pay me a salary or give me room and board. Anyways, um, so this angel of the Lord appears to Samson's mom and says, hey, even though you're barren, you're going to have a child. You, know, you, can't, you can't give him a drink. Don't cut his hair. You know, and he gives him this big long list. She goes back and tells her husband, hey, I, I, this man of God appeared to me and told me that we were going to have a kid and here's what he said and his, her, her husband was like, what? And so they prayed to actually see this guy again, right? And Lord knows, he appears again. He appears again. And she goes and runs and gets her husband. This time her husband meets him, and he's all, let's, let's, have, a, let's have a feast. Will you come and eat with us? That's what they always did. By the way, if you think about that, this is a picture of Jesus' appearance, and, and I'll tell you why in just a second. But every time that Jesus would show up in the Old Testament in like a pre-incarnate, pre-birth sort of a mode, Everyone was always like, get over to Jewel and buy the best steak, man. And, and we're going to have someone stoke up the Weber because we're cooking some food because the guy is here and let's have a feast. And so he asks him, will you stay and have a meal with us? And he goes, yeah, I'll have a meal with you, but I'm not going to eat any of it, but I will stay. So they slaughter an animal. We don't do that today. That would be kind of weird. Amber probably wouldn't like that in our household. So... Um, they slaughter an animal and they make this food and he goes, I'm not going to eat it, but if you put it on the altar and you light it on fire, then I, will, uh, then I think that would be pleasing to God and, and that'd be fine. So they put him on the fire and you know the fire actually starts going up and then the man of God jumps into the fire and shoots up into the flames and smoke and disappears into the clouds. And you know, then Samson's mom and dad are like, oh, that was incredible, we just saw God and he didn't kill us. That's basically what they said. You know, and um, they celebrated, and then Samson was born. And so I think that was Jesus. And by the way, you remember when Jesus would be talking to the Pharisees all the time? Do you remember what he, he told them? He said, look it, when I came to visit Abraham, or when I came to visit Samson's mom and dad, and when I did these other things, people didn't try to kill me. They wanted to have a party. They wanted to kill the fatted calf. They wanted to have a feast. And here I am. I'm here right in front of you, talking to you, just like I was talking to them, and you're trying to pick up stones and kill me. You are not Abraham's children. If you were Abraham's children, do what Abraham did. You should be having a party for me, not trying to kill me. Isn't that interesting? So you've got to get the Old Testament pictures to actually understand what's going on in some of the New Testament uh, um, story when Jesus is actually talking. So these are some pictures of, the man, of men of God, and there's other ones. Elisha is incredible, by the way. He was the one who saw Elijah taken up in a chariot of fire, and he asks for like a double portion of the power that Elijah had, and he was calling down fire and burning people. You know what I mean? And, 
Elisha actually did that. Elisha's got one of the coolest stories for little kids, by the way, about making fun of people. Do you know what I'm talking about? Like when, because he didn't have any hair, he was follically challenged. And, uh, and these little kids were coming out making fun of him. And he called, he like, he brought a curse on them and a bear came out and ate them. You know, like I tell the little kids that story and they're all like laughing about making fun of the old guy with no hair. And I'm like, and then a bear came out and ate the little kids and that's the end. <laughs> don't you love, don't you love how God does do that? It's hilarious. That sort of story is funny. <clears throat> It wasn't funny probably for those kids or maybe for the kids' parents, but do you know what happened? That prophet came into town and my kid's gone. It's not right. Well, he was making fun of the man of God. All right, so you guys can look that up. Seven, about 12 people, in the old, but only twice in the New Testament, both times in letters to Timothy. And I don't know about you, but um, I want to be, I, I, I kind of, I'm not looking forward to the, the label, you know what I'm talking about, the badge, but I want to know what it means to be a man of God. And I hope that those of you who are here today that are men, that you have that passion, that desire. Like, I want to know what it means to be a man of God. So let's jump in to 1 Timothy chapter 6 and let's take a look at it. 1 Timothy chapter 6. I'm going to group it into two different things. Men of God, from a descriptive standpoint, actually flee some things and they pursue others. Because that's what the Bible actually says. You can read the verse yourself. They flee some things and some things they pursue. You know what that means? That means that it's actually... From God's perspective, it's manly to run from some things. It's manly to turn your body in the opposite direction and take off in in a direction. In other words, there's some things that God doesn't want a man to stand in front of and fight. There are some things that that he wants us to, like stand up and resist the devil. And, and he will flee from you, okay? But there's other things that God says, if you're going to be a man of God, then you need to flee these things. And don't think that you don't have courage if you do, or that you're not strong if you do, or that you're, not, you're less than a man if you do. No, if you flee these things, you're actually falling right into God's definition of a man of God. You're falling right into it. And so let's take a look at what it says. The first thing actually comes out of 1 Timothy, and I'm backing up a little bit, because you've got to ask, in 1 Timothy chapter 11, it says, but as for you, O man of God, flee these things. What things? Well, you've got to go back up and look at the context. What is it that he's talking about fleeing? Well, the first thing is, he wants us to flee, and I just kind of group them all together. He wants us to flee from false teaching, from pride, conceit, and quarreling. And all of these things go together with false teaching. That's the root. You buy into false teaching, you begin to accept it yourself, you begin to push it forward into the world, then these other things, pride, conceit, and quarrels, are going to be the result of it, all right? So flee from false teaching, pride, conceit, and quarrels. Let's take a look at the verse. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 3 through 5. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and he understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. This happens. This happens all the time. We buy into false teachings. It produces division. It produces factions. 
It produces pride. It produces conceit. Now here, this is really important. And, and I would say this, and I'm certain Paul says this, all, all people who speak the truth say this, don't take my word for what I'm saying today. I would hope that you would look at the scripture and see that what I am saying is true. There are times I don't speak with an inspired tongue. You know what I'm saying? I might have a wrong scripture reference. I might contextually look at something wrong. I'm not perfect. I'm learning the word of God. But this book is perfect. And so you ought not to just dwell and drink from the well of biblical teachers. You need to pick the book up and experience God for yourself and begin to uh, train yourself up in communing with him. He speaks in a very living way through his word. I still remember some years ago, uh, Pastor Paul encouraged me to get this inductive study Bible. And what that really means is that it's a Bible with no notes at all. You know, like pastoral help notes at the bottom of the page. I was using one that kind of had like help notes at the bottom of the page. And, and I told him, like, oh, I'm going to give it a try, but I don't think I like it. Because I like having like the little notes at the bottom of the page. I like to be able to see what other people think about the verse. You know, especially the ones that have a lot of controversy around them. I want to kind of get, I want, I want to sort of, you know, get some Bible trivia underneath my belt or whatever. And so I started using, I started, uh, I got one of those Bibles and because of pastor's encouragement. And uh, during the first couple of days, I was trying to study the scriptures and I was like, I don't know, I don't like this at all. And I told the Lord, I'm like, I don't like this at all. And I told them, I literally told them, like, I'm going to give this one week. I'm going to give it seven days. I'm going to try to use this Bible with no study helps for, wh- for one week. And what ended up happening during that week was, for me personally, it's just a personal testimony, was miraculous because God began to speak to me in a way that I had not heard him before. And I'll be honest with you, I, I have not kept any Bibles. Well, I have them, but I, I don't use them at all with study references. I want God to speak to me. I want him to communicate to me through his word, and he's faithful to do that. But if we get so busy about this and that and the other thing, we can miss him. So are you testing what you are hearing? Are you testing it to see if there are false teachings going on? False teaching is going to get greater and greater and greater and greater until Jesus returns. And we need to be people who work diligently it's, it's the Iwana theme verse, right? Iwana approved workmen are not ashamed. That we handle the word of God accurately, okay? And, and I believe that um, here in the church that we labor, everyone here, all of the teachers, the, the elders and the deacons and the pastors, work hard to labor um, in the church, in the word of God, to preach the truth, even though sometimes it's offensive. So flee from false teaching, pride and conceit and quarrels. By the way, we have so much blessing monetarily in this nation. We have think tanks of theological thought all over the place. You know that? Like, I mean, we have computers to help us study. We have all kinds of written books. People have wrote stuff about theology. And we have, we have some of the smartest people sitting in seminary. And within a five-mile radius, radius of that seminary are people who have never even heard the gospel. And they're not going outside the doors of the seminary. What's up with that? And they'd rather argue about theological nuances and position themselves over here or over there. And you know why that is like that? Because we're blessed. We're not suffering. So we have time to study and come up with all these ideas and, well, that doesn't work there and that doesn't work over there and that doesn't work over there, so let's go here. And we're missing the point that the truth of God should motivate us into the world to preach the gospel to the lost. 
and to help those who are poor and to heal those who are sick and to open up the eyes of those who are blind and to see the truth of God come, to see God's kingdom, which is done and his will is done on heaven, here on earth. And we ought not to be spending all of our time, you know, quarreling about this and that. We need to be out serving and loving. And so that's my exhortation there. False teaching, pride, conceit, quarrels. The second point, and there's five of these, by the way, of things to flee, is to flee from greed. To flee from greed. This comes right out of the same passage, passage six, or uh, first, first Timothy chapter six, and um, he says this in starting in verse nine and ten. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of, and sometimes this is falsely quoted, the love of money is the root of all evil. That's bogus. It's the, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many pangs. And so men of God need to flee from greed and from the love of money. And we need to be careful in this country because there's, there's a lot of money here in this country. Although lately, with gas prices and stuff, maybe less. But you get the idea. There's a lot of money here, and, and we, we begin to think about, I mean, think about this. What is the American dream? And are we living for the American dream? I have to have a car. I have to have a house. I have to get my kids to college. I have to this, that, and the other thing. And we're so focused on it, we need to be careful. Because we could end up not redeeming the time, according to Ephesians 5, but wasting the time on the pursuit of building up an economic structure for stuff that's going to burn in the end. And we spent like, in all of the hours of our lives, a minuscule amount of hours doing ministry, probably because our parents forced us when we were kids, and a maximum amount of time gathering funds to ourselves so that we can expense them on our own pleasures. You know, and we, we, we go out and we spend you know, what is it now? You go to Red Robin to go out to eat or you go to Applebee's, you know, just for two people, you're going to pay 30 bucks. And then, you know, on top of that, you might give, I don't know, it depends on, on where you're at. Do you have a tip calculator? Do you give 10%, 15%? You know, and then we come to church and we give God five bucks. You know, I mean, we tip people at the Applebee's better than what we give to the church. What's up with that? Why is that like that? It's because we don't have a... We don't have a financial mindset that's kingdom-oriented. We don't, have, we don't see things financially the way that God sees things. We value the finances, and so we have to hold them. We have to hold the finances, and we can't see it. And it's difficult to give to God, isn't it? Isn't it difficult to give to God? I mean, it's different like if you lay down some cash on the table at the Target and you get a Nintendo DS, you know what I mean? Or you go to the game store and you, you, know, you purchase, you know, the, the latest Zelda game, and you plug it into your DS, because now you have something tangible. You can measure it, you know what I'm saying? You go to the car store, you put some money down, and you drive home in a car. And then you let your, your teenager drive it, and they crash it. What's up with that? <laughs> I'm sorry, that's an inside thing. Some of you, some of you have experienced that yourselves, too. <laughs> uh, 
Isn't it awesome? Yeah, that's just great. I remember when I, when I first bought this Ranger, we had this, uh, I'm rabbit channeling, but I had this, this, my brand new Ranger Splash. It was the first time they came out with a compact like beach truck. It was gorgeous. I had like the only one in McHenry. It was one of those times when you got your car and you were driving down 120 and everyone was like, whoa, what was that? You know, and you're like, yeah, check out my ride, you know? <laughs> That's what teenagers are all about. And uh, Reg and I were driving down the road one day and this big rock shoots up and cracks the windshield and the song that's on the radio when that happens is The Things We Leave Behind my, by Michael Card. You know, it's like, he's talking about like, you know, you're not leaving anything behind, so don't love the things of this world. And I'm like, oh, the windshield. Anyway. <clears throat> Flee from greed and from the love of money and the love of video games that will consume you. <clears throat> All right, that's First Timothy chapter 6. We, people leave the faith over this stuff. That's why Jesus says it was harder for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven than for the camel to pass through the eye of a needle. I mean, that's just incredible. Why? Have you thought about that? And look, it's not about finances. Do you know what I'm talking about? You can love God passionately and have a lot of money in the bank. It's not about the amount of money you have. You can have a lot of money and be totally consumed with wealth. And you can have nothing and be totally consumed with wealth. And both are idolatry. You can have money and you can love God. And you can be incredibly generous. And that's what the Bible talks about. That's what it means to be a man of God. Flee from greed, from the love of money. All right, thirdly, flee from sexual immorality. Now, I'm actually, I'm, I'm, I'm actually shooting out of Timothy for a minute, and I looked up some verses that talk about commands of things that we need to flee, and I need to talk about this one for a second. Flee from immorality. This is from 1 Corinthians 6, verse 18. It says this, God says, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person he sins against his own body. This is one of those areas where when immorality is facing you and it's right in front of you as a man, you need to turn and run. You need to turn and run. That's what God is saying. Flee from sexual immorality. Now, I actually think, and, and I think statistically we could prove this, that, that sexual immorality is actually a religion with the largest number of followers in the United States. It's the largest religious system in the United States. I have a couple of facts. I have a whole bunch of them. I, I'm not going to go through them all, but would you say easily that we have an epidemic going on here? And, and you know that sexual immorality, I've said this before, is directly proportional to our idolatry. As we continue to, to not worship God and to love God, immorality continues to increase. It's like a barometric measurement of our idolatry. The more immoral a person is, the more uh, godless they are. Actually, it says this in Psalm 12, it says that um, the wicked strut about on every side. You get the idea like they're like boasting. The wicked strut about on every side when unrighteousness is exalted among the sons of men. And that's what's happening. You know, not only do we have people that are, um, that are embracing this, but they're embracing it so openly that they have celebrations about their immorality. You know, they want to gain other people. We have television programs that are focused in on this stuff that are just saturating our kids with it. Not just our kids, but the whole nation. And immorality is birthed in the heart. It's not something that it's like a seed external carry. It's a seed that's already in my heart. It's in my son's heart when he was born. It was in your hearts when you were born. And we cultivate it. And our culture is cultivating immorality, majorly. Okay? And so this is a serious problem. 
not just outside the church, but even in the church, this is a serious problem. We have pastoral leaders that are falling prey to immoral immorality all the time. I mean, just over the last couple of years. Many um, high, highly positioned or visible people are falling prey to immorality. Why is this happening? It's because we are nurturing this when we should be fleeing from it. Here's some actual some statistics, maybe, just to keep in your mind a little bit. More money is spent on pornography every year in this country than country music, jazz music, rock music, classical music, Broadway plays, and ballets combined. If you sum all of that stuff up, yes, including Carrie Underwood's latest disc, if you summed all of that up, it would not hold a candle to how much money is spent on pornography every year. More money, this one's better, more money is spent on pornography every year than professional baseball, professional basketball, and professional football, including the Super Bowl. Every year in this country, more money is spent on pornography. Adult DVDs in a single year are pulling in $4 billion. $4 billion in a single year. Adult DVDs are coming out at the rate of 20 times the amount of films that mainstream Hollywood puts out in a single year. And the Internet has not helped us in crucifying immorality in our hearts. Because there was a time when, like, to, to get a fix on this sort of addiction, you had to go to certain places. You had to go to certain stores. And, and sometimes even non-believing people in the community would be like, you're not putting that stuff in the store where I go in with my kids. It's not happening. I mean, you even had to go like, into certain sections of, of rooms that were blocked off you know, from, from kids and stuff like that. Now, it's floating into your house and my house on cables, on wireless internet connections, and all of this stuff, it's everywhere. And... And the thing is, you don't have the shame of having to go anywhere and stand somewhere and to deal with the guilt until you kill the guilt at such a level that you no longer feel it. You can just log on to your computer. I got wireless internet flying all around my house. I got um, direct TV. It's coming. I got, I got immorality coming in through the satellite television pumped into my house. I have it blocked, but it's coming into my house and it's coming in on cable and it's coming in through the internet connections, through the telephone lines. It's everywhere. It's just everywhere. And, and people can log on, and they can pay for the stuff, you know, using their credit cards, and buy things without any fear of actually being found out. And so we have a whole bunch of people, um, especially men, although it's not only men these days, that are actually nurturing and cultivating a life of immorality. And some of them are playing at their Christianity. They're coming to church every week. And, and I've said this before, but Jesus says, don't mess with that stuff. He either wants you to be hot or cold. Either flee from it or embrace it. You're just going to make yourself into some sort of like a bipolar Christian and you're going to hate him. You're going to hate him. Because you, you do one thing and, and you love and desire the other and your love for God actually doesn't even exist. It's actually just a religious thinking system that says, I think I have to be this way. I'm supposed to hate it, but I love it. I'm supposed to hate it, but I love it. My parents told me I was supposed to hate it, but I love it. And eventually you just nurture it and nurture it and nurture it and nurture it until finally you just let it consume you. 
And, and that happens. We're losing young people all the time. We're losing young people to immorality. We're losing young people to, uh, to homosexuality. It's happening all the time. That stuff is in us, I'm telling you. The key here is Christianity offers an answer in crucifying that stuff and fleeing from it. But we need to acknowledge that it exists first. And our passion for God must equal or be greater than our passion for our pleasure. Flee from sexual immorality. There's a lot more references I can give about statistically what's happening with young people sexually before they even graduate from high school. You know what's happening? It's happening. We're cultivating it. Oh, even having our cell phones, too. Forgot about that, right? Because we can get uh, video on our cell phones and everything now carrying it around with us in our pockets wherever we want so that we can shoot up on the heroin of sexual immorality whenever we want to get a fix. It's an addiction for some people. Actually, the percentages say that about 6 to 8% of Americans are, are actually addicted to sexuality, uh, sexual immorality at a level where they cannot function because of it. And I would say that more and more that's going to go up. Look at what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah. We're not there yet, friends, by the way. We're not even close to where they were at. You know, I don't have friends coming in from out of town and my neighbors coming over and knocking on the door asking whether or not they could have relations with them yet. That's not happening yet. But you get a picture of what happens when the people forsake the Lord and embrace immorality if you read what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah. And don't forget, even though God brought that judgment on them, he was incredibly gracious in waiting for people to repent and even brought a messenger you know, through, through Lot over there. But think about Lot. Are you guys suffering like Lot in some areas? I bet you you are. Some of, your, some of you are parents and some of your kids have been making choices and you have felt the, the pain of some difficult choices that are being made because sexual immorality is being nurtured. That's a whole sermon right there, probably 13 of them. All right, next point. Flee from idolatry. This is 1 Corinthians 10.14 and Colossians 3.5. 1 Corinthians 10.14 says, Therefore, my beloved, I want you to flee from idolatry. What's idolatry? Worshiping at an altar that doesn't have Jesus on it. Anything that's not biblical. And we do this all the time. My definition for idolatry comes out of Colossians 3.5. It says this, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly within you. And then here it is again. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness. These things are idolatry. They are. Sexual immorality is idolatry. That's why I said it's a religion. Because people worship it. They give their money to it. They give more money to it than they give to God. Are you getting what I'm saying? And where you put your money will actually demonstrate what you value. You put your money into your kids, it's demonstrating your value, your value in your children. You put your money into your retirement, it's, you know what I'm saying? Think about it. How do you spend your money? It's showing it. And also, how you spend your time. Flee from idolatry. I'll tell you what, first we need to recognize what idolatry is if we're going to flee from it. And the fact of the matter is, sometimes we're so spiritually deadened in our sensitivity that we can't even taste what idolatry looks like. So we worship there and we don't even know we're doing it. We're like hypnotized by it. You know what I'm talking about? And we need God to awaken us. So sometimes I just have to ask the Lord. Personally, I do. Awaken to me. Do I have any idols in my life? Are my children idols in my life? Is music an idol in my life? Is my pursuit of my career an idol in my life? What are these things that are becoming an enemy between you and me? 
so that I can pursue you? What are they? And do you think he's not going to tell you if you actually honestly ask him? Do you think he won't tell you? Here's the thing. You have to be willing to honestly ask him. Because when he pries those idols out of your hands, they don't come easily. Sometimes we've been gripping on them so hard, it's like we have arthritis in our hands. And he needs to touch it and heal the arthritis first. And sometimes the pain of stretching out our fingers again hurts so bad, we're not willing to actually get rid of it. Plus, the thing gives us pleasure. You hear what I'm saying? So flee from idolatry. All right, last one from fleeing. Flee from youthful passions. 2 Timothy 2.22. This one actually comes out of the second letter to Timothy, and it says, So flee from youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Now, I'm going to ask you the question. When I say flee from youthful passions, you're probably thinking, "Uh uh-oh, he's going to go into another tirade again about sexual immorality. What is youthful passions according to this passage? It's not sexual immorality. It's not. If you go to the passage and you look it up, youthful passions that he's talking about fleeing from are actually how we talk. How we talk. They're actually sins of things that we say. The way we say things, actually. It's about, it's, it's about our speech. It's about being argumentative. It's about being irreverent with those who desire and not only desire, but who deserve, I'm sorry, deserve, those who deserve respect. You know what I'm talking about? If you've had kids, if you're a father or you're a mother and you've had kids, you know what happens. Somewhere along the lines, they become adolescents. Unfortunately, adolescence is being extended until they're like 35, especially for guys now. And um, that's why people are, are, that's why, by the way, that's why young women are not getting married, actually. They're more mature than young men, but the problem is, they can't find, if they're a Christian and they want to honor God and find a guy that they marry, they can't find any mature guys. They're all like off pursuing video games and junk and spending all of their money on garbage and, and not getting like an education and a job. And then they wonder like, why, why can't I find a good guy? Why is that? That's because their adolescence, which is supposed to last for like a day, if they have good instruction, that's how I feel about it anyway. I'm having that conversation with Aiden when he gets older. Uh, ends up lasting like 30 years. Ouch, that hurts. All right, flee youthful passions. Argumentative words, but you know when they get, they get to that part, it's like, you know, you go tenderly, kindly, you ask them, will you please clean your room? What? What are you talking about, Mom? What's going on? You're so abusive. I can't believe you're asking me to do something around here. What's up? Now, they might not, that's what they're saying with their body language, isn't it? I mean, <laughs> we could go really far with that. You guys probably have a lot of testimonies to share. That's what, that is what he's saying, youthful passions. The problem is, is that this stuff, which is like, I hate to say this, is kind of funny. No offense to you guys over there. But our three-year-old is actually more reverent and honoring than our adolescents sometimes. <laughs> He actually, listen, check this out, check this out. Last night, la- last night, you know, we're eating dinner around the table. We got a whole, bu- we have a whole bunch eating dinner. And Aiden gets down off the table and starts picking up everybody's dishes <laughs> and putting them in the sink. Dude, sometimes we have to ask five times. You know what I mean? Like, pick up your dishes. There were still dishes out this morning, man. I can't believe it. You know what I'm talking about? Aiden, though, he gets in there, he's like, and then sometimes he even, 
I have a tendency to like throw my clothes on the ground. You know, like, yeah. So one time he walked into our bedroom and he looked, he, it was just him and I, and he looks at me and he's like, duh, no. <laughs> he didn't pick him up and put him into the hamper though, but he was, the message came through loud and clear that I, I actually heard Reg through that, you know what I mean? <laughs> It's a secret plant, isn't it? She's trying to change me through the little person. Yeah, that's funny. That's funny. That's actually funny. <laughs> All right. You're thinking he's going to go on forever. I'm thinking that too. Um, <clears throat> finally, which is actually, and this is biblical, right? Where does that come from? Finally, when the preacher says finally? It means what? No. Halfway. And that's biblical. Why? Because you can look this up, that's biblical. When a pre- preacher says finally, that means halfway. And you could see that in the book of Philippians, illustrated. Because if you, if you turn to Philippians chapter 3, the f- there's four chapters. The first word in Philippians chapter 3 is finally. And so there it is, biblical. When a, pa- when a preacher says finally, he's halfway through. So we're switching gears and going to, those are the things that we are, a man of God, mentioned only twice, are to flee. Now the ones that are pursuing... I'm not going to spend a whole, as much time on these. We're going to k- kind of crank through them. I get them out of two verses. One out of 1 Timothy um, chapter 6, verse 11. You can read it right there. Flee these things, but pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. And then again in 2 Timothy, he's got a very similar list where he says, flee youthful passions, pursue, and he says some of them again, righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. And so what is it that men of God are, are pursuing? Well, one of them is contentment. That gets back to the greed thing. That's the opposite of greed. Contentment. Be content with what you have. And specifically, if you really want to know that what, when Paul said, I've learned the secret of contentment, what he's really talking about is, I've tasted Jesus and there's nothing else that satisfies. And, and, and I'm content being naked, beaten, or in having all the things that God would give me because none of that stuff in this world means squat when compared to Jesus. That's why Jesus said, your love for me, your love for your children, and hopefully you love your children, your love for your children should look like hatred in comparison to your love to me. And and that's the sort of thing we should have. Do you have contentment in Christ? Now there is great gain in godliness with contentment. Righteousness. These things are all just descriptors of Jesus, right? Jesus is our righteousness. He's saying, pursue Christ. Actually, one of the Old Testament names for God, it's like Jehovah Mekodishkam, is the Lord is our righteousness. He is the branch, the righteous branch, the the offspring of David, the shoot, the, the promised one, the Messiah, the anointed king. He is our righteousness. And in the And in the Beatitudes, he said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. You know, one of the the difficult things about that is, is that we have so much hunger and thirst for immorality, we got like Starbucks galore for immorality all over the place. You can plug in anywhere, but the places where you can get your hunger and thirst met for righteousness, they're diminishing in the States. By the way, where is that? It's in the church. The church is the place where, you, where those who are hungry for righteousness and thirsty for righteousness can find and be satisfied through communion. All right, this, this is where we're, what we're all about. 
and churches are closing their doors every day. Today, there is a church, and it's empty, and the doors are locked. And last week, they were worshiping the king, and they can't pay their bills any longer, and their membership is down, and they've had to close their doors, and their property is being foreclosed on, and they're probably moving to another place of worship right now. There's tons of churches closing their doors every day. And, you know, part of that is because of our appetites. Pursue godliness. Jesus. Pursue faith. Trust and trusting in God. Pursue love. That's what Operation Love is all about. Not just love for God, but love for people around us. And let's push that love out into the world. Pursue steadfastness. This is a hard one for me. Pursue gentleness. Pursue peace. Jesus said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. James actually says something similar when he says that the wisdom that comes from above is first pure and then peaceable and gentle and open to reason and full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make for peace. Are you a peacemaker? Are you a peacemaker? If you are, you're pursuing the title of being a man of God. How are you in your home? Do you bring peace to your home? I don't always, I'll be honest with you. Sometimes I'm the, I'm the explosive one. You know, like when the young people or someone else actually gets the cannon out and, and like, you know, loads it up and it's like, bam! It shoots it at you and it hits you like right in the chest. I'm kind of the one that's like, I'm getting my cannon out. I'm getting over here. All right, bam! But, but what the scripture says is, is that we are to be gentle. Actually, the, in 2 Timothy, it says the Lord's bondservant should be um, able to teach and kind and patient and gentle in their responses. Now, I'm not like that. I'm pretty fiery. I grew up in a house that was pretty fiery, and I think I actually have a lot of those same attributes. But my desire is to be a man of God in the home. You know what I'm talking about? This kind of sermon is hard to give for me because I don't measure up to this, but that's not going to stop me from proclaiming what is true. And... Um, and my heart's desire is that to go to God and say, I want to be a gentle person. I want to be that person that when an angry word comes, that I respond with gentleness. And, and you know what? Sometimes, actually, it makes the other person more mad if you do that. And, but we need to work on that. You know, we need God's grace to be that sort of a person, to bring uh, peaceable, gentle, open reason into our homes. Because sometimes, because we're not, and we've been cultivating anger and wrath and malice and these other things were, which are the opposite of these things we're actually driving a wedge in our relationship with our, with our young people. All right, lastly, men of God fight the fight of faith. They encourage other men to know Jesus and they worship the king. And this is right out of, and this is where I'm closing, 1 Timothy 6, 12-16. Fight the fight of faith. And he's getting serious now. God is getting serious through Paul to Timothy. And this is the exhortation I'm going to give to the men that are here and the women that are here. Fight the fight of faith. We are in an epic battle. Are your eyes open to it? Can you see it? Can you see the people driving by and they are skeletal in their cars? They are dead. They have nothing. And they have demonic entities that are holding them captive and they could not get set free on their own. They need the church to bring the love of Christ to bear into the community. How can they call upon 
him whom they have not heard. We don't need revival in McHenry. And I actually got this from uh, Mark Driscoll, actually, who's a pastor in Seattle. He's like, we're not looking for revival in Seattle. We're looking for revival. It's been dead a long time. And we need God to bring life. Not re-life, because there wasn't re to start. We just need life. And there's people in McHenry that have never heard the gospel. They don't know what Jesus did. They haven't heard it. I picked one. I picked a guy up and I asked him. And he said, I've never heard the story about what Jesus did. I asked him straight up. He has not heard it. And we need to go. We are in an epic battle. It's huge. And some of these movies that we pay so much money to watch, more money than we give to the church, by the way, I'll add that in there too. We spend more money on our tickets. We spend t- nine bucks to go see Incredible Hulk in the IMAX. And then we give like 50 cents to the Lord. Like, oh, he's like... But that just shows how we value stuff, right? Think about it. And we need to fight this fight. Look at what he says. Take hold of the eternal life with which you were called about, which you made the good... Remember when you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses? Have you been baptized? Did you confess to the church? Yes. I believe in Christ. I'm a follower of Christ. Have you done that? Then are you getting lazy? Are you becoming a couch potato in the spiritual fight that's going on? Get your armor out and polish it up Get the shield of faith. Put your helmet of salvation on. Get your boots on. Stop lazing around in your flip-flops. They're not going to help you. And get out into the battle. Begin to fight the fight of faith again. Remember, this is what the church is about. It's about exhorting one another on to love and good deeds. And he says, I charge you. Look, at he's getting really serious now. I'm charging you in the presence of God who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus. I mean, how much more severe of a charge can you give? I'm charging you by the immortal God who never changes, who's never going away, who will never die, and before Jesus, I am charging you, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, I am charging you to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of the Lord Jesus. He is saying, I charge you, man of God, Flee from those things that you are to flee from. Flee from false teaching. Flee from pride. Flee from conceit. Flee from sexual immorality. Flee from greed. Flee from, from youthful passions and pursue Christ and pursue righteousness and pursue contentment and pursue faith and pursue love and steadfastness and gentleness and these things that explain Jesus. Pursue Christ. Pursue Him. Do not bring a reproach to him until the day that you leave this planet because your body stops working or because Jesus returns and you meet him in the sky. One generation will do that. But as far as it is up to us, let's agree together that we're going to pursue this king. We're not going to live for ourselves. We're going to live for the one who lived for us and died for us. And that (laughs) <laughs> we can clap for that. Yeah. And that, that we get serious about following Christ so that as much as is possible by the grace of God, that the money that we have, that the energy that my body, one day our bodies are not going to function. We're not going to be able to come here. Do you hear what I'm saying? We're going to have to go and vi- someone's going to have to come and visit me possibly. I won't be able to come and worship. I won't be leading worship. The next generation will take over. Do you see what I'm saying? 
Let's not waste our time. Let's awake. Let's arise from the dead. Let the light of Christ shine and let's pursue him until the ATP in our body and our muscles ceases to exist and I no longer can breathe. And I stand before the Lord and I say, I've run the race. I've run it by the grace of God. I've pursued you. I flee from things when I can and I've pursued you and it's, it's all yours now. From the beginning to end, I am yours. And the last thing, and, and this is the most beautiful way to close, men of God worship the king. And I get the feeling that when Paul started writing this by the Holy Spirit, he was just going to say, because Jesus is just so great, period. And then he just started, he just kept going, like musically, you know. And Christians, like Jesus just inspires music. And he's just like over and over and over and over. He just keeps writing. Look what he says. Keep the command free of reproach until the appearing of Jesus, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in inapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. I think he just started writing and this is like on and on. Think about the songs. Have you ever sang a song about blessed be Jesus, blessed be God? Have you ever sang a song about God's sovereignty and how great he is? Have you ever sang a song about the King of Kings and Lord of Lords? Have you ever sang a song about how he is immortal and he is invisible and that he dwells in inexpressible light, that all light comes from him? Have you ever sang a song about how we can't see him but that he is great? Have you ever sang that he is your world? He is your everything. Have you sang it? If you have, you're joining into the spirit of what is being talked about here and it is a marked characteristic of a man of God. This is sad, but frequently, when you look at the church in general in America, men are taking a back seat to worship. Today, we added in an extra song, and I'm saying that like my, my focus when I come uh, to worship God, whether it's at home by myself or, or whether it's here corporately or somewhere else, man, I just want to expense myself. My encouragement is give it your all. Just like a priest bringing a, a sacrifice, you know, you're like, I'm excited to be here today, even though I don't feel excited. I'm gonna, sometimes we do and sometimes we don't. I'm going to offer a sacrifice of praise to my king because he's worthy of it. I'm going to place it on the altar and let the aroma go forward. I'm going to expense myself in worship. One of our, one of our friends, Scott Barrett-Smith, he pastors over in, um, in uh, Spring Grove, Sometimes we were, when we were, we used to have this like Saturday night meeting and we'd meet in this gymnasium. It was hot in there, man. And we would just be worshiping for like an hour. We'd just play music for like an hour. We'd be soaked sometimes by the time we got done. And he'd always make reference to the fact that it was holy water. He'd be like, oh, that's just holy water. And because it was, because the Christians were holy that were worshiping. But I know what he was saying and I, and I agree with it. Like, I want to feel like I, like I brought a sacrifice of praise to God. And frequently, like the men are just like standing around like, all good, man. I'm just going to let all the people worship because I'm too cool to worship here, you know, and I'll just hang out here. Like, don't get me wrong, not everyone can play an instrument, not everyone can sing good. God doesn't, is not looking, though, at what's coming out of your vocal cords. He's not looking at how good we play the guitar or how, how we don't play the guitar. You know, we can't, Reg just can't crank up the amplifier and the more, the more wattage we put through the system, like, God's more happy with the louder we get. You know what I mean? I mean, what's he looking at? He's looking at our heart. Wouldn't it be interesting if you had your eyes open like Elisha and he saw all of the, you know, like when his servant was like, dude, we're going to die, there's a whole army outside and there's only two of us. And Elisha's like, 
well, there's more with us than there are with them. And he's like, what are you talking about? You're insane. I don't care if you called the she-bear out or not. You're still insane. And he goes, God opened his eyes. And he saw that whole army of angels. What if, what if you, God, were able to open up your eyes and you were be able to see the worship going up from the hearts of the people that are here? Would your heart be one, even if you're not singing, would your heart be one that is pouring forth worship to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the blessed only sovereign who alone has immortality and dwells in inapproachable light? If it is, whether you're singing loud or whether you're singing to yourself and your soul, whether you're tapping your feet or clapping your hands or doing nothing, you are fitting into the category of what God says is defined as a man of God. And I would pray, or woman of God for that matter, and I told you, it's really Jesus, right? All of these things now, application, all of these things are just descriptions of Christ. He would flee from the things that are to be fleet, to fleed from, and he would face those things and pursue the things that need to be pursued. And we need to do this. We need to do this for ourselves. We need to do this for our king. We need to do this for our children. And we need to teach the next generation to flee and to pursue as well. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks. And we, I just pray today for everyone who's here, myself included, and our children. And just ask, Lord, that you would just give us a heart that flees things that need to be fleed from. And maybe there are some individuals that are just really wrestling with some of these issues, cultivating a heart that um, is in opposition to some of the things that you would teach. And Father, I would pray that you could bring freedom. You could just bring it right now. I've seen you come and take shackles on my hands and, and unlock those shackles and set me free in a moment's time. And I pray, God, that you would give people a heart to call out to you. And I need you in that area, Lord. I just need, and the scriptures say that if we humble ourselves before you, that you will lift us up. And it's in that humiliation that power comes. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us not to be like socially, I can't do that, but just to see you and see you alone and come to you and ask you to set me free. And Lord, you will do it. And Lord, help us to pursue the things that you would desire for us to pursue. It's impossible for us to love perfectly, but Christ loves and we have him. And so, Lord, we pray that you would more and more and more and more in the days to come, that you would explode that love out of our hearts, out of our lives, out of our souls, out of our mouth, God. James talks about that and you know how much I need that. And I would just pray that you would help us to be people that are characterized by your spirit, by Jesus, that we would... Um, that, that this community could see Christ. And Father, I would ask that you would do that not only here at Alliance Bible, so that we're coming at it from like the southern, southern part, but that all the other churches where the truth is being proclaimed, that you would just rise up and that we would strategically, without even really trying to do so, that strategically your spirit would cover this place with truth and that the next generation would hear, that people could be delivered of these of these things, of sin and of unrighteousness, and that they can learn to be followers of you, not just for the time that they're here on the earth, the short time, but for eternity. And we give you thanks, Lord. And I pray for fathers today that you would just help them all, God, help us all, to model what it means to be a man of God and to be able to pass it on, because I think the statistics are showing, and I believe it's true, 
that many of young people are falling away. Help us to model it and to model it effectively. And Lord, would you make yourself attractive to them as well so that they can move through those seasons of craziness as they go through their years of adolescence and that during that time that you would shine a light, a beacon in their souls that they can run to and find respite, to find rest, to find peace. And we give you thanks in Jesus' name. And all God's people said,